0: Welcome to the IEEE Blockchain Podcast Series, an IEEE digital studio production. This new blockchain series entitled Research Notes in Blockchain is hosted by Quinn DuPont, assistant professor at the University College Dublin School of Business and the author of Cryptocurrencies and Blockchains. Professor DuPont is joined by Professor Dr. Philip Sandner, head of the Frankfurt School Blockchain Center at the Frankfurt School of Finance and Management. Dr. Sander's research focuses on the economics of cryptocurrencies and blockchains. His broader research interests also include business finance and accounting, from entrepreneurship to venture capital.
1: So, Dr. Sander, uh, let's start with central bank digital currencies. In recent months, we've seen that uh, CBDCs have been um, unveiled, specifically in China, in a number of... Of pilot cities. And at this point, I think there's uh, more questions than there are answers um, about uh, what China calls the Digital Currency Electronic Payment System or DCEP, but appears to use some form of cryptographically secure blockchain. Um, However, it seems to be in a centralized fashion and it permits offline transactions using Bluetooth. So rather than focus on the technical specs, which I think are still largely unknown, I thought it might be useful to discuss Libra 2.0, which you've identified as Facebook's uh, perhaps competitor in this space. So if you could maybe start with a little bit of a description of what Libra 1 and 2.0 are, and specifically, I'd love to hear any thoughts on how Libra might be, uh, uh, to use Mark Zuckerberg's words, Extending America's financial leadership and and how that relates to China and the U.S.
2: Okay, perfect. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. That's a a good chance to explain multiple topics in the area of CBDC or digital currencies uh, to you or the audience. And therefore, maybe indeed I will give give a little bit uh, of a very introduction where we stand. So, um, CBDCs are on the table now since. Four years. Yeah? That's basically the time frame where central banks have investigated them. But we have to say here um, very clearly that investigating, first of all, needs analyzing. So central banks have analyzed them. They have written studies. They have done prototypes here and there. But there is not much development on the side of getting these systems In real life, of course, there are a couple of smaller central banks and primarily China who are really pushing this topics of getting CBDCs uh, to life, to real life systems. And here, I think China is at this point of time leading the world. Um, Apparently, their system is now live in a test mode. This means that first transactions are being done in a couple of cities, such that even a, a couple of employees, for example, are receiving parts of their salary already via this uh, digital form of the Chinese currency. This indicates that the system is live for test purposes and real transactions, real money is being done uh, to employers, for example, uh, employees. Um, and with this, uh, China is at, at the forefront, I would say so, um, in terms of large scale systems being ready to be launched uh, in broad scale to the market. And the second largest project at this point of time, I would say, is uh, the Facebook-initiated project uh, Libra. Libra has been announced last year in summer 2019 and at that time um, framed the Libra coin as a basket currency. So basically, one coin for the world mixed up and backed by national currencies, for example, the US dollar, the pound, the euro, the Singaporean dollar, and so on. And with this, Libra has gotten a, a huge rejection by governments, public authorities, and gen- central banks, probably more than they have, they have expected. And based on them, they, uh, it has been a little bit calm in Q4 2019. And uh, now in April this year, 2020, um, they have, let's call it, reno- renovated uh, their concept such that this basket currency is still there. But more important, they have now also um, proposed single currency tokens on top of the libra platform and therefore libra is not just a currency anymore yes it is but only to a minor degree but libra is now changing the role and libra can be more seen as a payment infrastructure for the for the world such that on this payment structure you can deploy potentially the euro the us dollar and any kind of currency on top of this Payment rails on co- top of this payment infrastructure, um, and therefore um, th- uh, this is a very promising concept because it's multi-currency. And uh, here we can see that uh, the that now governments are not really positive, of course, but at least uh, the the the, um, the 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 high degree of negativity according uh, to uh, Libra and their backer, uh, Facebook, um, has diminished to some degree. So um it's uh, it's more solid discussion um and facebook apparently wants to launch in q4 this year this has then the implication that uh, if they launch they would have to have at least one real currency put into a token running on their network otherwise it's not really a launch right so they are quite dynamic in what they are delivering and we know so far that they are applying for a license in switzerland and a license in the UK yeah so uh, most probably that's the countries where they are starting so it's smaller countries of the world it's not the European Union with the ECB and it's not the US with the uh, with the Fed it's smaller countries where they are trying to get the license and then deploy the local currency with a couple of license entities um, with others so this way we I, I now have explained that the Chinese approach uh, which is the farthest developed one so far. And I also have explained uh, Libra and maybe two more words about what other central banks are doing. Um, the ECB, for example, in Europe, they have explored the topic. They have written a couple of papers. They are doing uh, early stage prototypes, um, but they are at least five or six years behind China, probably more seven years behind. Um, and then you have the Fed in the US. Um, there have not been too much rumor what they are doing. But we know from history that the U.S. can quickly change technology uh, if they really want something. So they can be extremely dynamic. So we can expect that that the U.S. might be maybe three years or four years behind China. Um, That's basically what the the level of central banks. And now the last remark as an introductory point is this. And that's very, very important. Um, We do not necessarily need the central bank to take action. That's very important. Uh, because the central bank is providing, let's call it, the ultimate payment structure. But for industry usage, say machines connecting to a payment network, such that, for example, an autonomous car can do accounting in euro and can do payment in euro, for such an industry use case, you do not necessarily need to have the central bank to act. It's also okay that you have private commercial banks creating a so-called digital currency. Um, In Germany, uh, there is a topic called digital programmable euro. That's a topic which is now really on the rise. Uh, The the Federal Ministry of Finance is caring about it. The German central bank is caring about it, and it's it's climbing up uh, the agenda. Um, So, therefore, not necessarily the the central bank needs needs to act overnight uh, because it's a large-scale project. We can acknowledge that it's a large-scale project, and therefore it takes a couple of years. But in case the industry is demanding a digital programmable currency like the euro or another currency, then this can also be done by commercial banks who are issuing the currency on their DLT network. Uh,
1: so I want to pick up on this topic of um, this distinction between uh, central bank issued and privately issued um, programmable programmable money. So. In a, a very useful report that you recently published, you identified Libra, just to take that example, as um, as a privately issued money. And uh, you contrasted that with, at the top level, at the very least, c- uh, central bank issued program monies. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about this typology, um, where where it comes from and how you see it being used and, and how it helps us understand this uh, complex situation.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so, f- first of all, um, let's t- turn a little bit to the area of um, economics. So, um, in economics, uh, this is not too new because in economics, you since decades have, for example, central bank issued money. That's basically money which is uh, issued from central banks to commercial banks. Yeah, But we, as human beings, or maybe people run an organization or a company, say a retail company, these companies, they are not directly interacting with the central bank. They are interacting with a commercial bank. So in case I'm opening my online banking account on my cell phone, for example, or in case I go to the local um, subsidiary of a German bank, for example, then I would act, interact with a commercial bank. And then I would interact uh, in the currency issued by this commercial bank. So in case I'm doing payment for my rent, in case I'm doing a uh, uh, payment with Apple Pay, for example, or in case I was PayPal and all other companies, then I'm not using central bank issued money, but rather I've, I use commercial bank money. Therefore, this is not new uh, because already now we have uh, currencies. Let's, let's take the, the euro as an example. You have the euro issued on behalf of central banks. That's done for uh, large scale commercial banks. And you have the commercial banks, such as uh, local banks and uh, online banks. They are issuing the euro for me as an customer. So it's a two-tier system. Did, that's not, not really new. And the question now is, in case we talk about a digital programmable euro, the question is, where do we use DLT and blockchain technology to issue money? Do we use it on behalf of, of the central bank towards commercial banks? Or do we use it on behalf of commercial banks um, to target and issue the euro for me as a retailer, for maybe you as a company, or for you as a retailer, and so on. And therefore, this is is not really new, this distinction. And therefore, privately issued money is already there since decades. In fact, uh, it's such that basically if human beings and organizations are doing transactions, they are more or less 99% typically using privately issued money. That's, again, PayPal, commercial banks, uh, that's Apple Pay, Google Pay, uh, credit cards, and all these things yeah, therefore it's not new the question is now where exactly do you install and create the dlt system uh, to run the blockchain on top of it right i think this is
1: a very important distinction uh people often have that feeling that oh they hear that the central bank as it were mints money but of course that's not how it really works um so let's let's drill into that a little further um one thing that's potentially new mm-hmm. is that Central banks are getting into the, or potentially getting into the, uh, let's call it retail space of uh, issuing money. Do you think that's uh, something that is going to realistically happen? Is this happening in China? What do you, how do you feel about this?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. So um, maybe from uh, from what terms are currently being used, it's as follows. Typically, people distinguish between so-called wholesale. CBDC, that's again the central bank issued uh, digital currency. That's called wholesale CBDC. And typically uh, the other word is a so-called retail uh, CBDC. That's basically a CBDC, which should be used by end customers, human beings, organizations, um, industrial corporations, retailers, and so on. Um, So, and typically the wholesale CBDC, that's the very, very large scale project. This is not going overnight the retail uh, digital euro or the retail cbdc can be implemented on a on a faster pace uh, probably and um, therefore um, the the question is now would we as human beings interact directly with the cbdc the question now is going towards the retail cbdc um, that's basically the right word but this again has multiple forms on how it can be implemented yeah so if i'm using the digital euro the question now has the digital euro in my bank account been issued by a commercial bank or has it been issued by the central bank? Both would theoretically be possible, but it's very likely, and the same is happening in China, um, that, the, that that this two-tier system, which we are having in place now, remains. This indicates that, or this represents the following fact, that you have the central bank issuing money to the commercial banks and the commercial banks, uh, they are issuing money then to me as the end customer. That's the two-tier system. And here uh, you see in China that, they, that Chinese customers are not directly interacting with the central bank, they are directly interacting with commercial banks and the commercial banks are in the background connected to central banks. That's a great explanation.
1: Um, let's back up a little bit and talk about some of the opportunities that CBDCs offer. Um, the first uh, is what are the, as it were, economic or uh, you know, innovative features of CBDCs? We've heard about micropayments. Are there other things you can do with CBDCs, CBDCs or just programmable money in general?
2: Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the benefits. So wh- why are we doing this? You know, Why are mm-hmm. people interested? Why are startups working on this? Why am I working on this? Why are you asking these questions? Why are the governments exploring this and so on? So there needs to be some benefits. Um, and here I would uh, now not really mention the CBDC on behalf of the central bank. I would rather have the digital programmable money uh, in mind. And here uh, there are a couple of benefits uh, which I can quickly outline. So first of all, um, you can have cross-border transactions in say euro throughout the entire world within a couple of seconds yeah so i as philip sent money to a friend in argentina and the money is being sent uh, away right now and one second later one second later um, the money arrives in buenos aires in argentina now this is not possible now like an end-to-end transaction across the entire globe the same speed as you would send a whatsapp uh, or an email through the entire world, but here you're not sending a WhatsApp message, but rather money, this is not possible in this one speed, uh, one second uh, speed. Yeah. So cross-border transactions at high speed with a higher efficiency, um, and uh, at the same time, lower transaction costs, that's the first benefit. Then the second benefit is that you can automate payment processes. That's basically in the blockchain speech, uh, uh, you would call it smart contract. This means that you can have conditional payments uh, representing payment processes where it's not just about transferring money from A to B as soon as possible, but rather you would like to send money around based on specific conditions. So right now in our world, we not just transfer payment from A to B right away, but very often, especially when we consume products and services, then uh, we are uh, having um, yeah payment processes of complex nature. In place, For example, an escrow account or a recurring payment for your rent of your apartment, for example, or leasing constructions, factoring constructions, and all these things, they, they are payments which are executed once specific conditions are being met, right? This is called programmable money. And in the blockchain language, you would call it smart contract um, or smart contracts. This means that you are programming money and the money flows from A to B once specific conditions are met. For example, interest payments happening always at the first of a specific month. And here, right now, in legacy systems, you have to have quite complex systems in place such that this works. In a blockchain and DLT world, um, the, the system is there and you can implement smart contracts on top of them. And you can implement a leasing contract or a factoring contract with a couple of lines of code without needing like dozens of apis and do- dozens of interconnected systems yeah it's it's much leaner to program money that's the second benefit the third benefit uh, they are into in total there are coming i think five or six benefits so the third uh, benefit uh, would be the machine economy um in a couple of years there will be 20 billion devices connected to the internet yeah that's cameras Sensors, cars, machines, all kinds of things connected to the Internet. 20 million, that's three times more than people on the planet. You know, that's really massive. That's the machine economy which is uh, rising. And a share of uh, of these uh, entities makes sense to be connected also to payment processes. So why would we need this? For example, take the autonomous car. The autonomous car is driving around autonomously. But also, it should decide autonomously at some point of time. And in case it transports me as a human being, I need to pay the car, but it's autonomous. So there is no taxi driver anymore. So I need to transfer money from me to the car. And if the car drives me to another city and there is a toll station, for example, then the car passes the toll station. The toll station of the future has not an employee anymore. So it's also a thing. And the car passing the toll station would transfer money from one machine, that's the car, to the other machine, that's the toll station, right? This is money, machine-to-machine payments, which is also rising, but at this point of time, uh, the importance is close to zero, but it's rising. And uh, the likelihood is extremely high that a share of these 20 billion devices uh, by 2025, that's in five years, will also make sense to be connected to payment networks, such as the autonomous car, sensors, um collecting data selling data as small business units and so on uh, so and here you see that uh, DLT networks are the best technology to connect hundreds of millions of devices efficiently without any intermediate uh, APIs IT solutions servers and so on you directly connect a thing a sensor to the DLT blockchain network yeah that's really massive um, but companies are just now these days exploring the possibilities of such future business models. It's it's not there yet. But companies like Bosch, for example, the IoT company, they are now equipping their sensors with a software such that in the future, you can basically install a DLT network on the sensor even though the sensor might have been sold this year. Uh, So this this, it's underway, but it takes a little bit more time. Now, uh, the fourth uh, benefit um, would be... um, what I typically called integration of uh, delivery and payment. This means that right now when we are consuming a service, then we have the payment, which is happening, for example, on a credit card, and we are consuming a service, say transport by a car sharing car. That's basically happening in a different IT silo, right? Or security is trading. I purchase a stock, then money flows in one IT system. Yeah, That's the bank. and the stock is being sent to me in another IT system. That's the custody uh, um, companies, that's the exchange companies, and all these companies, they are then transferring the stock to me. But it's different IT systems. They need to be reconciled, and here errors occurring. It's inefficient, and it takes some time. And even if I'm purchasing a stock right now, then uh, we are bargaining a price, and uh, I feel that the stock is directly into my online brokerage account right one second afterwards. But until the stock has physically arrived with my account, it typically takes one or two or three days, right? And here, uh, DLT can have a massive uh, impact because you then have one DLT network. You have the euro on top of this network and you have the stock on the same network. And if you are now purchasing a stock, Then this trading takes place on one and the same network. So you do not need to reconcile IT systems because it's one integrated system with money on top of it and with stocks on top of it. So atomic swaps, that's basically trading. What takes place here happens in real time. And settlement does not take uh, a final finality of the transaction doesn't take one, two or three days. It takes one or two seconds. Yeah, that's really massive and it will bring down transaction cost. And therefore you see here that the core benefits why we should care about DLT networks um, is primarily in segments which are on the grow on which are growing and which are just happening in the future. Say the machine economy is not really here yet. It's emerging, but it's in the future. Um, but it's, it will be important for Europe and also for other countries. Then. The same is true for uh, payment automation, which is related to the machine uh, economy, for example. Cross-border payments make extremely much sense um, if you pay outside euro. So sending money not within Europe, uh, but sending the euro to another country, for example, in real time. Yeah, to, to your relatives in another country, um, to uh, people working in another country uh, in a globalized world. There it makes extremely much sense. So... The clear benefits of DLT is not something I, as an individual, directly observe. Because for me, as an individual, not too much changes. But for companies, industrial corporations, people who are exporting uh, stuff, who are importing things, who are transferring money to employees outside the boundaries for global corporations, and then the the looming machine economy, that's basically the areas uh, where the benefits are really, really real. And with China, we have a special situation because apparently it feels like China um, would like to uh, raise their own currency to a more important status in the world economy. Uh, Right now, the U.S. dollar is the world uh, currency in case I tell you the Bitcoin price, then I would denote this in US dollar, right? I would not denote it in euro and not in Swiss franc. I would denote it in US dollar. So the US dollar is somehow the uh, the prime currency of the world. Um, and I feel that China uh, might be interested in also elevating their the importance of their currency to a higher level. And I also would uh, speculate uh, that they are using DLT technology to basically improve and accelerate this process. For example, if you have Chinese tourists coming to Europe, then potentially uh, retailers and restaurants in Europe could potentially be connected uh, to Chinese uh, payment systems such that Chinese tourists can spend their money here in Germany, uh, but maybe with terminals uh, connected somehow directly or indirectly to the Chinese payment um, system of the digital currency. And there, for um, for those countries who would like to make their currency worldwide widely um, important, it can be an important aspect to care about DLT technology to really speed up uh, this process. Yeah, in case this is desired. Yeah, and there you see here, it's not easy to explain the benefits. The benefits are mostly appearing for companies, machine economy, as I said, not for the individuals. And therefore, uh, I think that's also the reason um, why. Uh, At this point of time, the topic of the digital programmable euro is still a niche uh, product and a niche discussion. It's not very broad yet. Mm -hmm. What
1: I'm hearing is it's going to be faster, it's going to be more efficient, but it's also going to be, well, privacy preserving or another way of looking at that is potentially somewhat um, obfuscated. And so this introduces rather immediately the question of regulation. Um, we're familiar with anti-money laundering and know your customer regulations, but I'm wondering how, for instance, the EU might be dealing this or how the, how the United States might be dealing with this. Do you have any insight
2: there? I don't have really insights, but I, I can express uh, to you my opinion. I think, you know, blockchain technology, it's just a neutral technology. You can do good things with the technology and you can ba- do bad things with the technology. You can use this technology to monitor every. Person on earth, uh, in case they are connected, you can want, but you can also use that technology to monitor what machines are doing. Yeah. So I don't want to be monitored as a human being. I don't want to be rated with whatever I'm doing, but maybe it makes sense. uh, uh, If uh, artificial intelligence uh, is increasing that we are using this technology to monitor what machines are doing. And the same is true for governments. You have governments who have values such as privacy. um, For example, that's uh, quite important in. Europe, um, therefore, this technology needs to comply with these values, and actually, you can program the digital programmable euro such that it is private. Yeah, uh, you, there are technologies already being developed such that um, transactions are only transparent to the regulator in case they are. Um, happening at a specific value and above, like above a specific threshold. Mm-hmm. And below this threshold, these payment transactions could potentially be entirely private, not to be recognized by anybody out there, not even the regulator. You can technologically guarantee this. But these technology technologies are currently being developed, and therefore they always need to be reconciled with the values, uh, what is important for a specific government. Um, but it's in my mind, it's an... Um, It's not true that blockchain is always about uh, transparency. We know Bitcoin and we know Ethereum. And these approaches are created in a way that we can inspect all transactions, even though we do not know to whom they are going and from whom they are coming. And therefore, we think that blockchain technology is always perfectly related with transparency. Uh, But you can also construct DLT systems such that um, privacy of transactions is technologically being guaranteed.
1: Hmm. One of the features we haven't really touched on here of programmable money is the idea that you can create a stable coin. Um, so I, I believe this comes out of the challenges that, for instance, Bitcoin has had over the years of price volatility. Um, and in more recent years, uh, with the you know, advent of, of Libra and a number of other projects that are trying to figure out um, how to reduce this price volatility, they've hatched upon a couple of different uh, ways that a stablecoin can be designed. The most obvious one is just a one-to-one fiat-backed digital token, but there's also non-collateralized versions that use algorithmic controls to manage supply. And then there's uh, collateralized approaches like Libra. I'm just wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about how one creates a stablecoin and what some of the pros and cons are.
2: Yeah, that is a very, very good question. So let's uh, quickly roll back how this all emerged. So in the beginning, there was Bitcoin and then a couple of other cryptocurrencies emerged Then the ICO uh, craze happened. And this was happening at exchanges where people traded into these crypto assets and out uh, of them, right? Actually, I think that Bitcoin and Ethereum are amazing technologies. They will stay with us. Uh, but many of the other three or four thousand cryptocurrencies will probably fade away. And then people uh, also, of course, they speculated a lot. They traded at exchanges. And sometimes they wanted to simply keep uh, stability of their value overnight or they would like to withdraw their investment to a market neutral position. And then by history, the only goal was to withdraw the Bitcoin and basically exchange it back to the legacy euro or the legacy US dollar, you know, like via uh, your standard bank account in and out. That's an extremely tedious process. Then uh, banks uh, stopped the transactions because they feared uh, money laundry and so on. And this was the point in time a couple of years ago when the exchanges said, so let's do something with stable coins. Let's package the US dollar and create this US dollar on top of a DLT network. network. Uh, let's create... This U.S. dollar on a DLT network, the project I'm referring to here is called Tether, uh, which is at this point of time the largest uh, stable coin. And this resulted in the possibility such that uh, market participants investing in cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and so on, that they could uh, take a market neutral position overnight or over a couple of weeks by simply selling their Bitcoin, storing their money on a pseudo neutral asset, which is called the U.S. dollar on a blockchain system, and then purchase Bitcoin again when they feel. And then these people would not have to exchange the Bitcoin back into the legacy US dollar or the legacy euro, but could stay in the US dollar in a token form on a blockchain base basis without uh, these uh, forth and back transactions, just for efficiency reasons. This was the uh, the realm of the stable coins. And the largest stablecoin right now is the project Tether. That's uh, created such that you have deposited US dollars on a bank account. It's audited, but this auditing is uh, being suspicious, to be honest. And uh, in case there are ten euro on the bank account, then the company says, "Okay, we are now creating ten tokens. We stabilize the prices at exchanges, and then we can say that this token is." the US dollar. One token equals one US dollar, and this works apparently well. Of course, in in times of crises and uh, market turmoil, then uh, the price fluctuates plus plus minus two three percent around the one point zero zero. Because it's difficult to keep mm-hmm. price stable, but in, but largely it works very well. And based on this movement, uh, you have um, inspiration coming from this uh, towards privately issued. Um, Currencies, you have inspiration coming from the to the C B D C world, and you also have inspiration going to the MakerDAO movement with their stable coin called DAI. That's also an interesting project. Uh, fascinating because that's basically more or less coupled uh, or packed to the US dollar, but there is no bank involved. Yeah, So uh, any anybody can get these uh, stable coins called DAI in case they are securitizing their. Uh, uh, cryptocurrencies, for example, Ether, within the network, and then they get DAI based on this securitized Ethereum, yeah? so to, to explain this very quickly. And here you see that uh, with the MakerDAO um, ecosystem, that's not CBDCs, but in an entire differently uh, designed ecosystem, you also have a stable coin emerging, which is at this point of time packed to, to the US dollar, but this packing could also be changed in the future potentially. The, this ecosystem is extremely small, so therefore uh, very often it's not really uh, taken seriously, but it's growing very quickly and it's enormously innovative. It's very dynamic and by definition it's dynamic Yeah, because companies, smart contracts, uh, the startups out there, they are interacting with each other regardless where they are sitting on the world or regardless where the employees are sitting. So you have companies from Spain, from the U.S., from elsewhere. Um, and uh, altogether, it works because you're just plugging together smart contracts. And therefore, it's an extremely fascinating ecosystem. Right now, it has uh, a capitalization of, I think, one billion U.S. dollar. That seems much, but in, cor- co- in comparison uh, to other areas of the financial markets, that's, of course, uh, relatively small. Mm-hmm.
1: And so how does this compare, these approaches, how do they compare to uh, what we imagine the Libra, Libra 2.0 is going to be? How does Libra approach this problem?
2: Yeah, uh, Libra is fascinating because uh, Libra wants to be a payment uh, platform. Um, as I said, uh, on, top, on, on top of this entire pyramid uh, in the Libra ecosystem, you have this basket of currency. The basket of currency is made of single currencies. And the single currencies are one by one being plugged on top of the Libra platform. Potentially, I could then pay in euro, um, for example, my pizza in case I am going to a restaurant, and uh, in case I need to pay, then I pay with, with showing uh, the uh, with with scanning a QR code, and then um, euro on top of Libra is transferred to my wallet to the wallet of the restaurant. Yeah, that's for example uh, the one uh, use case. But much more interesting is uh, the is the topic of financial inclusion which we so far did not tackle because we should not forget that according to estimations out there there are 1.7 billion people on the planet um, that's really a large scale of the world's population who do not have access uh, to professional payment solutions. Yeah. That's people who are living in countries with high inflation. That's people who are living in banks where the regime is corrupt, such that no banks are, uh, or are really working nicely. That's people who cannot really store money overnight, uh, especially if they have to uh, move to another country, for example. That's all these stories, hundreds of billions, uh, hundreds of millions of people. And uh, Libra apparently tries to tackle exactly these 1.7 Um, billion people to try to encounter the problem of financial inclusion there so uh, concerning your question what is libra doing here libra tries to tackle the market of these 1.7 billion people because that's what the business literature says it's a so-called blue ocean there is not much competition there of course there is uh, payment by uh, cell phones and so on but in generally, um, that's an untapped market, and here Facebook can really be of a large scale value because uh, Facebook is installed hundreds of millions times with people's cell phones. And basically, if Facebook is trying to push Libra by implementing the service in their apps, Instagram, WhatsApp, and the Facebook Messenger, they can basically provide a formidable placement uh, for this uh, future um, platform called Libra, which is then happening in the background, right? and here libra is fascinating because they can yield an overnight adoption of their cryptocurrency system of of their payment rails infrastructure whereas bitcoin ethereum and so on they are now out there since uh, 11 years in the case of bitcoin and still um, the adoption is growing yes that's true but it's still at a very very low Absolute uh, number, and here Libra could really overtake any other kind of approach, because Facebook has uh, so much connected uh, devices. And last remark here: um, the uh, the the narrative of Libra tackling these 1.7 partly or entirely financially excluded people on the world. Uh, that's written now in documents, uh, and I it would be great if this is true, because then it would really help the world. Um, but maybe it's also just a PR thing, yeah? saying that they are going in this direction, then it's not true. We have to observe this. Of course, there are concerns with privacy and data uh, protection and stuff. We, we know this, but in generally uh, the, uh, the LIPRA project can really be fascinating um, in case they are holding what they are promising.
0: Thank you for listening to our interview with Dr. Sandler. To learn more about the IEEE Blockchain Initiative, Please visit our web portal at blockchain.ieee.org.